Welcome back to Technopolis, where technology is disrupting, remaking, and sometimes overrunning our cities. I'm Molly Turner. I teach urban tech at the Berkeley Haas School of Business, and I was the first policy director at Airbnb. And I'm Jim Capsis. I was a climate negotiator in the Obama administration, and now I advise tech startups. We're back with another collab episode, this time with someone we've had on the pod before, you may remember, Bradley Tusk. He is a political strategist. He's a venture investor behind some of, uh, you know, more of the disruptive companies and startups uh, in tech world. Uh, and we talked to him a couple years ago, but we had him back on the show this time. Yeah, and he's had quite the career. I mean, from being running mayoral campaigns for Mike Bloomberg, being deputy governor of Illinois under the infamous Rod Blagojevich, to being Uber's first political consultant back when they were a tiny startup. So it's really interesting to hear his take on how the the politics of urban tech have evolved over the years. And it's no surprise that his podcast, The Firewall, covers a lot of ground connecting the dots between politics and tech and culture and everything in between. You know, what I found particularly interesting, you know, was sort of his take on, uh, you know, where tech is going in cities and what what its relevancy is, is going to be and, and, and how cities are going to engage with uh, you know, with tech firms moving forward and with tech workers. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting to hear his um, kind of recap of what happened with Amazon HQ2 in New York and comparing that to what you saw with Amazon's HQ2 in Alexandria. And I also thought it was really interesting just to hear Bradley's evolution on, you know, the burn it all to the ground political strategy that he employed with Uber a decade ago and how much more collaborative, he at least says he is with tech companies and cities. That, that surprised me. Yeah, I think things have fundamentally changed, uh, you know, in cities and 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 sort of some of the tech backlash that we've seen. And I think he's seen the writing on the wall and is and is adapting. I thought that was really interesting and and kind of talking about the important role that you know policymakers need to play and how tech has to work collaboratively with them and how it's already kind of happening, which in some cases is right. It's true. Yeah, it was a surprisingly optimistic episode, and there's a lot of fun uh, for us to record with him. So I uh, hope you all enjoy. Welcome back to another episode of Firewall. As usual, I'm your host, Bradley Tusk. Um, with me today is Jim Capsis and Molly Turner from Technopolis, and we're doing kind of a joint podcast. So if you remember, like, back in the 80s when, like, people from one sitcom would go on the other, so, like, the cast <laughs> <laughs> Something like that. that. That's kind of like what we're doing here today. So we're all just kind of interviewing each other and chatting. But Jim and, and Molly are, are experts in uh, urban technology and, and the same kind of stuff that, that I, I love talking about, too. So thanks uh, for doing this, guys. Yeah, it's fun. Hey, great to be here, Bradley. Thanks for having us. Yeah. yeah so w- would you say that, that we are still in the pandemic or do you think we are officially out of it now? Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, there's no way we're totally out of it. I mean, the Delta virus kind of seems a little scary to me. I don't know. My partner and I just decided we're going to be wearing masks in the grocery store now because of it. Doesn't feel like we're fully out of it. What do you no, think? What's it, what's it like in New York, Bradley? New York. I was in New York like right before the pandemic hit. Haven't been back since. Uh, like, that's the first time I wore a mask was in the subway. Yeah, and so I came in, home and never in went the back. subway or like in an Uber, I wear a mask, and that's really been about it. Uh, went to the movies with my son. We didn't wear masks. That uh, must have been surreal. It's a big move. It was kind of, it's funny, it was It was a pretty bad movie. It was F9. Uh, <laughs> I, I figured I was going to ask you whether it was F9. It. Yeah, but um, 
but just being there was so good that like it really made up for the fact that the movie was totally <laughs> um, Yeah, I've been going to Mets games and not wearing a mask. I've been more non-masked than masked, but I'm supposed to go to Greece for a meeting in two weeks. Well, that'll be interesting. Starting to Man, uh, jealous Mets Mets games in Greece. We're talking my yeah, language. Exactly. Probably. Although the, the Greece thing now, I'm starting to think maybe with the Delta variant, is it the best idea? But. I'll, uh, I'll, I'll probably. But wait, why does it always got to be the Greek letters to like for bad <laughs> stuff, right? You realize that? That's exactly right. It's like hurricane, hurricanes and pandemics. <laughs> like, come on, guys. We invented democracy. Give us a break. So, so given that we're sort of either towards the tail end of it or not or whatever it is, you know, the nature of cities obviously has changed a lot in the last 16 months or so. Um, curious what you guys are thinking, like, okay, Fast forward a year from now, let's assume the Delta variant is not that big a deal. And in a year from now, 75% of the population has been vaccinated. It's the best we're going to get. And we're sort of as back to normal as we can be. Um, How much do our cities look like they did pre-March 2020? I think they look pretty darn similar. I I think there's been a lot of overhype about remote work and on-demand everything, totally transforming our cities. I think people really miss urban life. We're seeing this as these cities reopen, right? People are going back to sit in restaurants instead of order food from home. I know a lot of folks who are already back in the office that can't wait. I personally cannot wait to get back in front of my students in person in the classroom in the fall. So I think cities are going to look a hell of a lot like they did before. I think our downtowns are going to be a little depressing though. There are going to be a lot of closed businesses and that worries me. Yeah. I'm kind of, I'm 80, 20 and Molly and I don't always see the same uh, on this topic. Like I think uh, certain things, I think people are going to want to go back to normal, but when it comes to work, I think the remote thing is, is here to stay for a large percentage of, of, of people. Um, I think certainly as you go up the sort of the income ladder in, in terms of the types of jobs that you don't have to show up for. I mean, if you're not working uh, in a restaurant, right. Or, a dry cleaner uh, for professionals. I, I just think that that I think it's going to stick. I mean, this the remote work, and I actually think interesting your take, Bradley. That you know, the sort of the the at least mini exodus from some of the bigger cities, New York and San Francisco. I think people are going to come back, although I think it's going to be different people. Uh, and I think a lot of the folks that left are not coming back. And and I think we're going to continue to see the exurbs, you know, grow and thrive. And I think that's a good thing, personally. Oh, really? You think that's a good thing? <laughs> I do. Well, Mr. I mean, being small, small cities, smaller cities. I, I would agree with everything until that last that last comment. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's interesting. So if you think about a place like a New York or San Francisco, they, they are inherently hard places to live, right? You To live in, no matter how much money you have, you make sacrifices to live in either of those cities. And the city has to deliver, I would say, enough of a value proposition um, to make it worth your while, to make it worth all the sacrifices. And where I think cities like New York and San Francisco are potentially in real trouble is e- even if you accept kind of what what Molly said around, um, you know, people being excited to be out and about again and going to restaurants and all that, I, I think that's true. And I see that here in New York. You know, I'm not making my employees come back every single day. And so realistically speaking, at any given moment, we'll probably have 40% of the number of people in the office that we used to pre pre pandemic, I thought I'd take another floor in our building. I don't need to do that. And then that all trickles down to the blue bottle downstairs, the CVS across the street, the restaurants, everything else. 
And then to just make this really depressing, that all results in significantly less tax collection and revenue for the cities, which means they have less money to invest in public safety and, and operations and sanitation and everything else. And the more that the cities start to feel dirty and dangerous, the more that value proposition starts to fail. And the more people who, you know, and it's like when I grew up in New York City in the 70s, Brooklyn turned really dangerous and my parents moved it to the suburbs. Um, the equivalent of that in the 90s and 2000s didn't really happen because the city felt safe. Um, you could go back to that where all of a sudden people are moving, like you said, to, to, to the exurbs. Um, and then all of a sudden you're just in this bad cycle where the people who, who are kind of tax revenue positive, they don't need a lot of services and, and, and they can contribute a lot, are here less and less. And the people who stay are the ones who have more needs. Um, and you get stuck in this sort of rough rough cycle that could last for a while. We've talked about there obviously a lot of fundamental changes that have occurred because of the pandemic in cities. Uh, we're not sure what's going to stick. Bradley, you asked, what, what are things going to be like in a year? I and mean, kind of coming back to that, curious, you know, w- what you all think the sort of, what's the next wave of sort of urban tech going to look like? And how is it going to be different from what came before yeah, the pandemic? Maybe because of what we're right. talking about right now, about what's changed. And, and it's funny because I was, that kind of dovetails with that what I was about to ask you guys, which is, it, does the posture of cities towards tech change a little bit um, because of the pandemic? Are, are they more friendly? You know, more friendly because they need the economic development and jobs, or does sort of the you know hatred of tech from the far left just continue uh, r- regardless? Right? Um, yeah, well, I, th- I think you know. What do you think? We're else? certainly seeing some bipartisan consensus around hatred of big tech right now. And, oh, for sure. Yeah. And, you know, I kind of wonder, I know you've thought a lot about this, Bradley, but I kind of wonder how much that trickles down to bipartisan hatred of the little guy tech startups. I mean, in cities like San Francisco, where I live, there's been a lot of anger toward tech for a long time. I actually think during the pandemic, that's changed a little bit. It's it it's gotten a little better. I feel like tech is less of a punching bag here in San Francisco, maybe because the tech companies were some of the first employers to tell people to work from home. Um, They've had very generous work from home policies. Um, But I wonder when we reopen, you know, if that reputation will still be as positive. Uh, Yeah, I think what's going to be different, and I think it's already become somewhat different, uh, but, but curious what you guys think. So like pre-pandemic, you talk about, you know, where are the big tech companies going to gonna go? Yeah. Like, where are they going to open this new big office, right? Amazon, it's all, HG2. right? I mean, we want HQ2, yeah. damn it. We're proud of it in Northern Virginia. We're happy to have them here. New York pushed them away. Um, but that was a big, that was a big deal. And that was part of the battle. But I, I, I think the battle now is it's for tech workers. It's not for the companies. I mean, maybe that will change, but my, I guess what I'm seeing in my hypothesis is that increasingly cities are going to go after the, 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 you know, the tech workers who can kind of be anywhere. And I think we've seen a little bit of that with the mayor of Miami, you know, making a push in other cities, smaller cities. And that's, you know, you're going to kind of crush me for using the word exurb in a positive light, but I really was talking about smaller cities that are able to thrive now. They're more affordable. um, They've got a lot to offer. And I think people are moving there and they're going to make those places kind of more dynamic than they were before. And I think that's going to spread wealth and innovation more broadly, maybe not equitably, but more broadly, I hope more equitably across the country and not just concentrated in 
I have to say, I think that is a really good thing. And that's how it's always should have been, right? City economic development strategies were so broken. Giving all these tax handouts for big companies to relocate there did not work. They should have always been focused on quality of life, attracting talent and people who, you know, have high paying jobs, are, are likelier to start new businesses in that city, create new jobs. So I think I see this as a good thing. Yeah, well, think, let's, let's take it a step further then, which is because I, I totally agree with you on, on, on the tax incentives, even though our politics are different. What if you were just to argue, look, the job of the city is to give people a clean, safe, well-run template where, where they then live their lives. They build businesses. They start nonprofits. They have families, all of that. you know. And And cities don't need to be sort of the, the, the Federal Reserve Bank. They just need to give people sort of a, a decent starting point. And, and then it'll, if, if they do that well, the rest of it will take care of itself. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I could see a world where you said like all government tax breaks are, are not necessarily, you know, are, are just sort of counterproductive and all the money should just go into quality of life and, and, yeah. and the basic services. Yeah, wholeheartedly agree to that. We'll see if that lasts. I mean, I think these... HQ2 like competitions are just addictive to big city mayors, right? They see that as their lasting legacy. Whereas, you know, investing in clean streets and quality of life doesn't get headlines. Oh, yeah. Although, you know, the HQ2 thing, obviously, at least in New York, ended up being a loss. Uh, Sidewalk thrown out of Toronto. What do you think about that, actually? I'm really curious about your thoughts on the sidewalk in Toronto. Thing. Was yeah, it the I think pandemic that doomed no, it or with politics? No, I, I don't think it's a pandemic. So it, it's a bunch of Bloomberg people, right? So these are my friends from City Hall who, who are, ran this, you know. Um, no, I, I, I think it was clear that they weren't going to win. Pre, they, they may be using the pandemic right now as cover, but I don't, I don't think it was the pandemic. I think that Google or Sidewalk and, and the city of Toronto made the same mistake that Amazon and the city and state of New York made, which is they just sort of assumed everybody's going to want this thing. So it's just a question of us working out the deal to make it attractive enough for the company to be there and didn't really think through all the stakeholder politics, Um, especially like if, if you take New York as an example, the politicians who opposed Amazon and effectively drove them out of New York understood that while the deal pulled well in the city overall, and even pulled well in their districts, of the 10 to 12% of people who show up in a state Senate primary, a city council primary, even in a congressional primary, that group of voters hated Amazon. And the smartest thing they could do politically was to oppose the deal. Um, And for as long as people were elected by very small swaths of voters who tend to be overly ideological on either the left or the right, depending on where you are, that lines up very differently than kind of what makes sense in the aggregate. And so the political incentives are different for the really local politicians than they are for the mayor necessarily or the governor. And so I think they misread it. And what, but that didn't happen in Alexandria, I mean, did it, Jim? I mean, it was a different politics there. It's just, yeah, different politics. Uh, there was, I mean, across the board, the politicians in uh, Arlington, Alexandria, uh, were super supportive. Uh, the governor at the state level was really supportive. And there wasn't that kind of blowback. I mean, there are concerns. There's a community uh, or a neighborhood that's really adjacent to where I live. 
um, that's a largely Hispanic immigrant uh, neighborhood. And there's been a huge focus from very early on to try to ensure that that neighborhood doesn't get sort of gentrified in a negative way that pushes those folks out. And so there's been sensitivity to housing prices. But housing prices have also gone up. Of course, it's hard to know whether it's the pandemic or Amazon. I think it's much more the pandemic, actually, than the Amazon effect. But generally speaking, yeah, it's just been it's been different. This is also more, even though it's a very progressive part of Virginia, I think relative to you know New York, uh, it's still a fairly moderate political state. Uh, you know, frankly, but going back to sidewalk, I you know I think you guys both know I I spent some time advising sidewalk in the early days, sort of leading up to them winning the original bid in, in Toronto. And listen, I remember the the fanfare and the the you know sort of the cutting of the red tape, and there was a lot of excitement when sidewalk came to Toronto originally. And uh, I don't know, my, my theory, you know, is, we, you know, that the sort of backlash against big tech that had started in Europe had not yet hit Canada, really even the US at that time, it's a few years ago now. And it kind of caught up. Um, and I think you're right, Bradley, that some of those stakeholder issues turn out to be stickier and folks thought they could work through them and turn out that they couldn't. But I think it was a conflation of things, including like, I think this wave that was coming that had not yet hit. There was still a Google Glow <laughs> when that was first yeah, announced. Trademark. Like new jobs, you know, new office space. That was all part of it. And then it kind of, the, the bloom came off the rose relatively quickly. Yeah, somehow don't be evil is no longer sufficient to just smile and, and monopolize yeah. the way to millions of dollars no, that's right. profits so, every quarter. So we've been talking about kind of the tech companies as employers, as real estate owners or tenants. But I'm curious about the tech businesses. And one thing I've been really curious to get your take on, Bradley, is New York State, I think, is the only state in the country right now that has one of these digital vaccine passports. Yeah. And I'm really surprised by that. Like, why do you think New York State, the politics in New York State supported that, and that hasn't really worked in other states yet? And I, I'm just really interested in how all of this data collection and is going to play out in the in, in the future. You know, are we going to all of a sudden wake up and be like, oh my god, you know, the our government has collected all this data on our whereabouts through these you know COVID notification apps and now through the vaccine passports? And is there going to be a backlash to it, or is this is New York State's uh, first move on this uh, vaccine passport, a signal that, oh yeah, we're we're cool with this now and we're going to see this expand across the country. Yeah. I mean, look, you, you, two things. One is on one hand, I haven't seen a lot of opposition to people downloading the app and, and getting it, although it's totally voluntary. You can also just carry around that little card. That's probably the key piece, voluntary, it, right? But on the flip side, no one ever asked for it either. Like I've used it <laughs> times to get into a Mets game and that's it. So like it never really ever, I think one of the reasons why it wasn't a huge controversy is it just doesn't ever seem to come up. Um, hmm. So it's useless other. in other words. Uh, I guess. Yeah. I mean, it hasn't been, look, didn't, doesn't cost, didn't cost me anything to get it. So I didn't care, but it hasn't, hasn't been particularly necessary one way or another, but also New York, you've got some weird conditions where, 
Um, you know, Albany, where this stuff comes out of, is very different than New York City in terms of its politics and kind of progressivism. And then Andrew Cuomo is in a weird space because we don't know if he's going to be the governor again in a month or right. three months or six months or not. So no one quite knows what to do with him or what to make of him. So, you know, there's, there's probably a bunch of idiosyncratic things. But if you take it a step further, let's say that we're entering an era of pandemics that it wasn't just a one shot deal. And I hope that's not the case but you could see why it might be. Um, do you then get to a world where effectively people do have to be able to identify whether they're vaccinated or not and kind of what, what their health status is through some kind of technology because otherwise we just can't function? Um, you know, maybe it wasn't necessary to, to emerge from COVID, but, you know, if we have another pandemic in two or three years, maybe it does become the norm. It's an interesting experiment. I, I think in this country is having a hard enough time getting a certain fraction of the population just to get the vaccine in the first place. So the idea that everyone's going to right, agree to and sign up for a, a, a passport, a digital passport, have their information you know, recorded in that way. I mean, I see a lot of merit to it for keeping us all safe, but I think of all the of all the countries in the Western world, I think you know we're probably the least likely to yeah. embrace it wholesale. I, mean, I think it's been interesting to look back at what happened with you know Google and Apple teamed up to make this COVID exposure notification app, and everyone was super excited about it because you know the federal government wasn't doing anything to help folks track this stuff, and it sounds like the app didn't really do much. <laughs> If anything, it was a bit of a distraction. And, you know, the kind of tech solutionist alarm bells go off in me and it's like, okay, there's another one. But I'm also wondering, you know, maybe it's okay if it didn't really help much. It was a useful experiment. We learned from it. Maybe the same thing with this vaccine passport, you know. Unfortunately, these things might be useful in the future. And if it's not for pandemic, maybe there are other use cases for local government, you know, to use some of these tools to communicate with and provide services to residents. So I hope, I hope we've learned from some of these. I want to, can I ask you both about you, you've both done, I mean, I think we all have, but I think you, both of you in particular have done a lot in transportation, Bradley, maybe infamous, uh, in, in some of your Uber, Uber, Uber work. You guys run it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you've gotten that question way too many times. Um, but I am curious, I mean, Transportation. What you know? What are the long-term effects in cities on uh, from the pandemic? What you know? What's going to be better? What's going to be different? What might be worse? Yeah, it's it's a really good question, um, and I think you know, I I think in a way maybe not that different, right? So like, if you take Uber and Lyft, um, their core business will come back as people sort of are out and about more. That just sort of seems axiomatic. But at the same time, their core business is not profitable. And for as long as the two of them are constantly trying to, you know, they're in subsidy wars for customers and drivers, I'm not sure it ever will be, right? So um, it, it may not really make a difference. Um, you know, micromobility, I think, maybe has a, a, a little more of an edge case now, um, if nothing else, because people say, hey, I'd prefer to be able to get from point A to point B without being in a bus or a subway car or even a, a car, regular car with someone I don't know. Um, then all of a sudden a scooter or an e-bike um, might be uh, might be more appealing. Um, but but the other thing I think we learned is that just our mass transit systems are just not nearly good enough, right? And we, we knew that before COVID. I think it was exposed even more during COVID. 
And and now that I don't know about you guys, but I'm back on the subway in New York, and it's kind of like the first time I was back on, I was giddy, I was so excited. Yeah. And by like the third mm-hmm. time, I was like, oh, this sucks. Uh, <laughs> you know, still smells yeah, like urine. Back, back to usual. <laughs> so I don't know. I, I I think it probably helps. And look, I've got you know before listeners start accusing me of, of peddling my own investments here. You know, I've got investments in different parts of the of the space, but yes, I am an investor in Bird. Um, but I, I I do think that micromobility benefits, and I don't think Uber and Lyft, I think Uber and Lyft are still a tough sell either way. Yeah, I mean, I, I think uh, Uber and Lyft are going to face a real hard time getting more drivers. We'll see, but I think uh, that's going to be a challenge getting enough drivers for their business models to be viable when people want to use them again. I, you had, you've worked with Bird. I work with their competitor, Spin. And it's been really interesting to watch how the scooters, you know, I think were first, like when they first entered uh, cities, were seen as a little bit kind of quote unquote disruptive new tech. But over the pandemic, I think something's really shifted and they've been embraced by transportation leaders as an actual valuable part of the mobility's ecosystem. And not only that, I think that these micromobility options have really benefited from all of the quick build programs that cities have done, you know, to build bike lanes as fast as possible and all this stuff. You know, that that's the kind of infrastructure that they've been advocating for and needed. And so I think that's the silver lining for them from the pandemic. I'm I'm excited I'm excited about a couple of things that I want, I want to get your take, which is one, obviously in a lot of our cities, it's true. I mean, in DC, Alexandria is big time in New York, I think. Yeah, a lot of roads were reclaimed during the pandemic for people, right? For parking spots were reclaimed for restaurants and for sitting outside. And, uh, and it seems like some of that's going to stick. Uh, I mean, that's my sense. And I, I mean, certainly, I don't know, Bradley, you were closer to it, but the, in the mayor's mayoral pri- uh, primary in New York, I think every candidate in that primary endorsed some proposals from transportation alternatives, which run by a mutual friend of, of me and Molly, Danny Harris, uh, which was basically saying by 2025, we're going to reclaim 25% of our street space away yeah, from cars. Yeah, I, I think and it's funny. It wasn't yes, and it wasn't even... Um like an active political shift, it, it was almost common sense, right? So it, it just, you know. Which is amazing. Yeah, That's it, amazing. Because 18 months ago, it was absolutely no, not. I mean, just, the thing is, if you walk around New York, the outdoor restaurants are kind of wonderful. And I think people just see that. And it's so evident to them that they're like, we don't want to get rid of this. And like parking spots, like, you know, I guess it's useful if you're driving around looking for a spot, but no one else benefits from it. Um, and so I think it was one of those trade-offs. I remember it came up in one of the mayoral debates and it was like, I think the moderator thought it was like a hot topic. And then it was like, yeah, obviously. Yes. That's amazing. We agree. Yeah. But you know, to make all of this work back to your earlier point about public transit, like we have to reinvest in public transit. Thank goodness the Biden administration supports public transit and has bailed out the transit agencies and is proposing a bunch of new funding with the infrastructure um, package. But I feel like there is certainly a tendency in some parts of the tech industry to give up on it altogether. It's broken. Don't fix it. Flying cars are going to solve this problem. You know, flying cars will free up the street space <laughs> for all the restaurants and oh, scooters. Topic, I, like right? that's my biggest fear is that we, you know, people, you know, get back on public transit again 
realize like you that it's imperfect and say, F it. I believe in the rise of the bus. It's coming oh, yeah. back. And the, sh- the bus and the shuttle and they things make it, that are- they, found, they find a way to finally make it faster? Like what, well, what, they've, uh, in San Francisco, we've painted miles and miles and miles of red carpet bus only lanes over the pandemic, you know, which yeah, that, I think those, I think those are going to help. Lot. I also, so going back to an earlier topic, I think there's this movement to, of people to spend more time in their neighborhoods. The 15 and minute city. I think you're going to see the rise of neighborhoods. The 15 minute city. 15 minute city, but the rise of almost a 15 minute yeah. neighborhood, I would call it like the rise of the, of the neighborhood. And with that, the rise of a different kind of public transportation model where, you know, we focused so much on subways and metros and they're great, but they're, they were built for commuting primarily to downtown jobs and to get people from where they live to places where they worked. So how does transit then adapt and change if let's say 20% of people are no longer commuting, they're working from their neighborhood, but they still need to get places. They're still going to go somewhere. They're not going to sit at home. They're going to go to a scooter. local, right? Co-work, co oh, scooter. <laughs> well, for some yeah. people. Yeah. I think, I totally think, I think, I think it helps micromobility for sure or vice versa. Right. I think it's a big play, but, yeah. but I also think other well, forms and, and of transit. Extend that out. To other things. So, you know, I think we all kind of agree that the, the downtowns and midtowns are, are from a retail restaurant standpoint are going to suffer because, because of work from home policies. Um, is there a commensurate gain in the neighborhoods of the same cities? Um, I think a hundred percent. I think hundred percent. And anecdotally, because I, I know a lot of the restaurateurs and business folks in just Alexandria, and we got hit by the pandemic from the businesses got hit, but the restaurants and some of the other businesses in the, in the neighborhoods where we live, they did okay relative to all the places downtown that just had to totally go out of business because people who lived in the neighborhoods kept frequenting one way or the other, right? Take out bevies and, uh, and just take out, uh, and they were able to sustain themselves and sur- at least survive the pandemic and not and so it's all relative right but i do think that over time there's still going to be this concentration of uh, or this new concentration of commerce and in in neighborhoods and in smaller cities that it's shifting from downtown to where people live and then you're going to see i think bedroom communities or neighborhoods that felt like bedroom communities Kind of transform themselves a little bit and feel just more urban, and I, and I think it's a good thing. I mean, or I think it can be a good thing. Yeah, yeah. I mean, look at the end of the day. I mean, I don't know about you guys, but like, I don't like going to Midtown Manhattan. You know, <laughs> uh, it sucks. It feels soulless and boring. And if, if I mean, the waiting room in Penn Station is my favorite place on <laughs> right. earth. Actually, have you been to the new one? The Moynihan <laughs> Station is pretty nice. I, I have it. It is. I, it's. I, I've lost my. Yeah. Sort of the, the thing I hate the most in life really is. Yeah. The no. The, the new one. The new one really. But, they, they did a good job. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. It is beautiful. It's finally. Yeah, it's now, it may be then part because of the pandemic. It's also pretty empty still. So you don't. Doesn't feel like. You know, it, it's overrun with people. But the, yeah, they did. They did do it well. But yeah, sure. I mean, if you if you told me that I never had to go north of Twenty Third Street, um, and I can get everything that I need, I would sign up for that in a heartbeat. Right. Um, so yeah. that, you know, yeah. that, that could certainly work and, and that could sort of help cities, you know, protect itself against the rise, like you said, of the exurb or the suburb or something like that. Um, so 
autonomous cars. That's oh, always true. Uh, mm. oh, this, this is going to be good. This is going to be good. Go for it, Bradley. Lean in. Back by the pandemic, unimpacted by the pandemic, expedited because people want uh, to be able to get from point A to point B without interacting with another human being. How do you see it? Well, judged by the recent uh, dominoes and neuro joint commercials that I've been seeing all over TV here, (laughs) at least there it's becoming more mainstream. You can now order Domino's pizza, um, via autonomous vehicle. I don't know how many cities I look, I, I've always been a bit of a cynic regarding autonomous vehicles. I recognize that they're our future. They're gonna, they're going to be here. I think not nearly as fast as as their uh, proponents have been predicting. I just hope that, you know, during the pandemic, we, myself included, have our appetite for on-demand everything has just increased exponentially. And it is not a sustainable appetite to have when you're living in a city. And that's frankly not what you live in cities, not to stay home all day and have things delivered to your door, but to get out there in the world and run into random strangers on city streets. And so I frankly, I frankly hope that um, our insatiable appetite for on-demand everything diminishes as we reemerge and that that will therefore impact what kinds of autonomous vehicles and what kind of, what we use autonomous vehicles for. For example, if we use it for these buses that Jim is so excited about, that would make me very happy. I hope we don't continue to use it for Domino's delivery pizza. I think that the co- the core point that you're making, Molly, which is exactly where I am, is that um, autonomy as a technology it's it's just an enabling technology. How you use it is a totally you know it's kind of oh, up the to tech us. Is it's, up, it's up to the market. It's up to yeah. sort of. I, I mean, and so uh, you know, Bradley gets to talk about your investments. You know, we have a I work with a company called Optimus Ride, and it, the reason we decided to work with them. Is because I think their model is—it's like one of the good guys. They're they're an electric, all electric, autonomous, low speed shuttle, and so to me, that's consistent with the kind of cities we want to see in terms of how we're using autonomous technology to, frankly, make cities and make life better for people, as opposed to everybody, you know, owning their own. Waymo so that they can go and live 50 miles away from a city and then like commute right with with the car driving itself and everyone's just by themselves in car, in autonomous vehicles like to me that's like the Orwellian dystopian future that I don't like but I think the technology itself if it can make transit and mobility uh cheaper and more frequent and more convenient and faster for people like that that has a lot of positive potential to me. How's it? I don't know. What, what, what's it your take? How's going to work in New York City? I'm curious what you think. Oh, it's going to be a while, right? Because I I don't think that the technology is anywhere near ready to be able to, to navigate the, the yeah New York's hard here. But I mean, it gets. But, but Jim, your your point about it being an enabling kind of technologies, I think kind of a good macro point, which is fundamentally, tech is neither a panacea to every single problem that exists in cities. Um, nor is everyone who works in tax sort of evil capitalists who are just trying to, you know, destroy uh, hardworking people, right? Neither of those things are true. Technology is a tool that you can use 
to make things better. And if you don't use it the right way, it can also make things worse. And it's just got to be understood that it's a tool to be kind of regulated uh, like any other um, without sort of an inherent bias for or against it. And to me, like, you know, even though I'm kind of a tech evangelist, if, if we could get to that point where people just look at each technology and say, does this help consumers? Does this help voters? Does this help constituents with something in their lives? And if so, how do we make it work for them? And if not, why do we need it? Like, I think that would, that's more than I think anyone that I know in the tech sector would even ask for. Bradley, can I yeah. push you on that though? Because uh, I'm wondering whether you're, you're, you've, I know, changed your approach a little bit or how you're thinking about this, where, you know, I think a decade ago, it's like, you know what, like things are messed up. The political forces are, you know, preventing innovation. So let's just as tech show up and show people how to do it better. But what I'm hearing from you is maybe that we're in a different moment now, which is there's there's a bunch of tech that could be really good for society, for cities, but it's going to take, frankly, the policy community and politicians to, you know, and and the and people, voters, to kind of determine which which future we want and to craft policy and regulation in such a way that we get what we want and not necessarily, you know, what we what yeah. we don't. But maybe that's a maybe no, that's no, naive. But no, I'm just I, curious. I think and like Uber and the kind of transition from Uber to Bird in some ways, I think it's pretty instructive, Jim, to what you're talking about. Which is so for Uber, you know, we were rough and I, we steamrolled all these local, you know, the people that you love, all the DOT, you know, <laughs> those, those types, right? But but we didn't have a choice for two reasons. One. Um, we were facing pure protectionism, right? There wasn't like a really good valid public policy reason to stop ride sharing from happening, number one. And number two, more important, the rules governing paying someone to take you from point A to point B already existed and Uber and Lyft, they fit into those, right? That wasn't like fundamentally, Travis didn't like invent the notion of paying someone to take you somewhere, right? He just came up with like a little tweak on it. Um, but the regulatory framework already kind of captured it. It was just a question of like whether or not taxis protectionism was going to succeed. Whereas if you take Bird, I think it's been a much more collaborative process with cities in part because there are, and this scooters generally, I'm just using Bird as, as our example, um, very valid public policy questions, right? Like we've identified in this podcast that, that scooters are an important form of micromobility that I think can solve some problems. So we all see the potential for them. At the same time, there are really good questions. Should they be on the street, the sidewalk, specific lanes? Should you mandate helmets or not? Should there be insurance or not? Where do you charge these things? Like these are all valid and fair questions. And I think because of that, People have, you know, on both the, the tech side and, and the city side across the board have done a much better job of sort of recognizing like, hey, you know what? Each of us have valid points here. Let's try to work together to resolve these. I think the regulators no longer think that they could just wave their hands and make tech disappear. And I think they honestly, they, they learned that lesson. And, and part of it was, you know, me being pretty rough on them to make them learn that lesson. Um, but I think at the same time, tech startups don't now automatically assume that all regulators are stupid or corrupt or everything else. So I, I think it's gotten better. I agree. But to bring yeah. this back to kind of how to make our AV future better and back to the pandemic, I'd say my biggest fear is what, hap what happened in Nashville several years ago happens across the country, which is you might remember, can't remember what year is, a couple years ago, there's a big bond measure to fund uh, massive public transit investments in Nashville, particularly bus. 
And the opponent's argument was basically, why would we invest in public transit when autonomous vehicles are going to make life so much better? Don't invest in a broken system. Let's work toward an autonomous future. And the bond measure didn't pass. And that's been horrible for Nashville and autonomous vehicles are nowhere near here. And and that's really my biggest fear coming out of the pandemic is that happens here where we say, look, there are all these new technologies that can solve all our mobility problems. Our public transit system sucks. Ridership hasn't come back. Let's give up on it. And that's where I really think I agree with you, Jim. Like our, our government leaders need to really speak up and advocate for public transit in the face of all of these sexy private sector solutions because it way, can't compete yeah. otherwise. And by the way, nor is it, if, if, you, if you think of the perspective of, of the AV companies, it's not, they're not harmed by public transit improving. Right. I mean, fundamentally, if if self-driving cars really work and happen in whatever form, whether they're Optimus ride buses or whatever else, people, it's going to have plenty of usership. Right. It, it's so fundamentally, if I'm Waymo or, or somebody, you know, I would rather work with the city of Nashville and say, OK, let's see where we fit into the broader solution here. Yes, we want you to legalize uh, autonomous vehicles. But, you know, that's part of an overall answer that includes subways and buses and scooters and bikes and everything else, too. And I think especially because, you know, you can't just steamroll your way to legalizing AVs in the way that we did with Uber um, because yeah. there's so many, you know, just complicated regulatory questions just have to be answered that at least if I were advising any of these companies, I would say, like, this is an opportunity actually to, like, gain goodwill and negotiate a deal where, where you get support for what you want to do and you provide support for what they want to do. And to their credit, a lot of these AV companies have hired really fantastic transit experts. I know many of them. And so I, I think they are investing in that, but we'll see how the politics play out. You know, like it, the sexy new technology is always better than investing in the broken public infrastructure. Well, it sounds like maybe we're we're getting to maybe a hopeful message here as we maybe kind of close out, I think, on the conversation, which is, if I'm summarizing, uh, yeah, the pandemic was, was rough and it's caused a lot of uh, heartache and suffering for a lot of people and downtowns are going to have a hard time coming back, but there's upside where, you know, let's, you know, some other communities, smaller cities, neighborhoods maybe look a little bit better. Uh, workers can have more flexibility. Uh, and from a tech perspective, uh, mobility looks maybe like it's got some potential to, you know, have, have, have improved in cities, you know, because of the pandemic, at least our streets. And Bradley's predicting, uh, you know, maybe more of a collaborative approach between tech and and politicians and regulators I never moving forward. Right. I know. I, this is, we're making news, Bradley. <laughs> I'm supposed to be the hardcore one on the, you know, waving the big stick and screaming at everyone to get off my lawn. So, yeah. Um, yeah. No, I look, I think that, I think that's right. Um, and I, and I do feel like that's, that's the direction things are going in and that's, that's certainly for the better. So, you know, that's, that's, that's the positive legacy. Well, let's hope that's true. I think all three of us are going to be really yeah, busy. Sure. Is what I think that means. <laughs> Guys, thanks for doing this. This, so. this was a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. Thank, thanks. This Absolutely. was a lot of fun, Bradley. 
Thanks for listening to this special episode. If you enjoyed it, subscribe to both Firewall and Technopolis wherever you listen. And we'll be back soon with more episodes, so stay tuned. And a big thank you to Anjana Agarwal, Stephen Lacey, Daniel Waldorf, and the Firewall team for their help with this episode.